My name is James Hill and welcome to MISC, a podcast series of my interesting snappy chats with successful people about the themes, ideas and experiences that challenge them. I tend to interpret it not as a um, sign of Chinese strength. It's actually a sign of Chinese weakness. My guest today is Bates Gill. Bates has seen up close how a global perspective can transform the world for the better. Primarily focusing on China and Asian affairs, his 30-year international career as a scholar, policy advisor, and institution builder has taken him across six continents and to some 60 countries and counting. Along the way, he has led a global top 10 think tank and held research positions at world-leading universities and public policy institutions in Europe, North America, and the Asia-Pacific. He is currently Professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University. Bates... Thank you very much for joining. It's my pleasure, James. Good to see you. How have you been over the last couple of weeks? Uh, I think better than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. I, I think at the beginning, knowing that it was going to be many, many months sort of in basically self-imposed exile uh, was going to be difficult. I'm, I, I like the give and take of uh, being with colleagues and friends, socializing and all that. Uh, but uh, the upside has been getting a lot of work done. And then an amazing amount of um, other opportunities popping up, uh, like this one, um, and, and many, many others around the world, uh, which would have never happened pre-COVID. So, uh, so far, so good. It's been it's been quite nice. And you made it back to Australia, of course, because for a second we thought <laughs> you'd right. be um, stuck in. That's right. Things. So, uh, my wife and I had these long-standing plans to um, spend about two weeks in the United States, um, and uh, for work. And the day after we left, this was an early. March, my university uh, put down no international travel uh, allowed on business. So we got out one day before we were uh, w- would have been banned from doing so. Um, and we kind of got into these states. We spent some time in Florida, and then it was D.C., New York, Boston, and San Francisco right around March 8th. And I don't know how close people are following this, but that's right when the things were really beginning to go pear-shaped in the United States. <laughs> and we're traveling around on air planes and on trains and driving rented cars. And um, I was on the streets of uh, New York on March 10th, I think it was, March 11th. Anyway, um, did we got Did you we, see we the change back. there in, in New York? Uh, not really. Uh, I think people were getting increasingly nervous, uh, but there had not yet been any sort of institutionalized stay-at-home policy. People were at work. The trains were full. Um, you know, people lunching at cafes and such. So it hadn't yet really been imposed. Uh, and then we got back to Australia um, about two days after the prime minister announced that all international arrivals would have two-week um, you know, stay-at-home requirement. Mm-hmm. So that sort of started it out. Uh, and it's been, yeah, what, nine weeks now since then. Yeah, it's gone remarkably quickly. Well, we're very glad that you, uh, I was you thinking, made it back. <laughs> I was thinking today, James, that today is the first time I've been uh, east of the Sydney Harbour Bridge How's that um, in nine, nine or ten weeks. So it's good to be here. <laughs> Well, I, I've had the good fortune of listening to you speak a number of times now. And uh, the last time um, I heard you speak, you were introduced as Bill Gates. Yes. Just how often does that happen to you? <laughs> a lot. A lot. <laughs> and I don't know how to react to it anymore. Um, I used to make the joke that um, I had my name before he was famous, which is true. Um, and uh, But it's, it's back in the days when there was mail... Um, uh, I, I collected, I would cut out of envelopes all the various permutations of my name that would come, a, come in my mailbox. Don't do that anymore. Um, uh, so, it, yeah, it happens a lot. 
but I don't mind. He's a good man. And you're a Microsoft or Apple person? Uh, I use Apple products. There you go. But then Microsoft software, you know, so whatever. <laughs> I've listed all of your um, accomplishments at, at, in my introduction. But in your own words, how did a lad from Detroit end up in the world of international policy advising? <laughs> well, um, it's been a great journey. Um, I, I, I'd like to attribute it to my parents who were very... Uh, I think quite liberal in their thinking by and large, certainly open to uh, the idea of trying to gain um, uh, experience uh, and not be cooped up within one frame of mind or another. My mom was a very liberal uh, woman for her for her age um, and you know encouraged us to attend the black church in in Detroit, which was a great eye opener um, and allowed me to um, take part in a choir. Um, which a state of Michigan choir that traveled over to Europe when I was like 16 years old. And that was a huge eye opener. Um, I'd already picked up some French language, but then you realize, wow, there's really a reason for this. Um, there's, there's, there's a whole big world out there. And I really, that moment really changed my thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I really wanted to be international. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to find a way to, um, to get out of the United States, get out of Detroit um, and see as much of the world as I could. So that really, that really launched it for me. But I think the, uh, maybe the, the really, maybe even more important turning point was the decision to try and follow China, mm. you know, which I would have been, I don't know, maybe in my late teens or early twenties when this diminutive fellow who at the time was leading the People's Republic of China, his name was uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, <laughs> he came to the United States uh, on this, you know, this, this huge visit uh, back in the late 1970s. And I was just, I don't know, sort of awestruck and interested. And it really changed my uh, trajectory away from being a, a Europeanist or a, you know, a Europhile uh, to, to a person who wanted to find out more about this emerging giant, China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made some decisions to pick up Chinese language and get over to China as soon as I could and, and yeah. live and learn there. And that really, I think, set it all off for me. It was good. And that, that was the spark, kind of that, that tour of the U.S. Um, yeah, that he took. I mean, cause I don't know if he, he, you know, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He was wearing the cowboy hat. Um, it was just like this very odd change in uh, America's relationship with that country. Um, and you could just see that it was the beginning of something big. You could just tell. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was when I said, that's what I want to do. I want to learn more about that country. I got to learn that language. I want to get over there. Um, and it was sort of the very, very beginning of it, of this remarkable trajectory that the, that we've seen now, um, that China's gone through. How long was it from that, um, fascination with China to actually setting foot in China? It took about five years. I had to get out of university. And then, you know, figure out a way to get over there. And, um, and it influenced your, um, university study as well. It did. I, that's when I picked up, that's when I first started taking Chinese language. Um, I mean, I was going I was in international relations and, uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, but I just had a sort of different area of focus. I thought, well, I'll use my French language and, you know, live my life out, uh, in the, in the, in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But that's not the way it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so you became, um, what I've heard as a China watcher. Mm. Uh, what what is it for the for the audience? What is a China watcher? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you hear it termed in lots of different ways, and I think a lot of people lay claim to being China watchers. But I guess the way I'd like to think about it is probably self serving in a way. Mm. You know, you've taken the time to learn the language, um, you've taken the time to do some in depth study, 
uh, of, of China, whether it's history or its contemporary situation. And of course, I think most importantly, you've spent a fair bit of time over there. Uh, and not simply in the cities or um, the major cities like Beijing or Shanghai, um, but try to get out in the countryside and get to know the people. Because um, uh, I think, like any like any major subject like China, um, it does take years and years, I think, mm-hmm. of, of, of serious study. And uh, importantly, even then, um, have the humility that, that you still don't really have a full enough grasp of what you're trying to understand. Um, so as China's become the big uh, power and influence that it is, I think a lot more people are coming on and, 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 and know something about China, which is good. But I guess I'd like to believe that it, it takes 10, 20 years of serious study to, to begin to lay claim to understanding it. Mm. And over that period of study, um, what have been some of the most extraordinary things you've seen with regards to Chinese foreign policy? Well, yeah, the, the big, the big change, of course, uh, well, there's several. I mean, one, one would be a, the confidence, the degree of confidence. Uh, recall in 1978 or 1980, you know, this was a country emerging from 30 years of chaos internally, uh, under, under Mao mm-hmm. and was only then taking what at the time was a huge decision to open up to the outside world, um, with all the opportunities and risk that that was going to entail for the Communist Party and its ability to survive. And we've seen over the the past, the ensuing 30 years, just how many threats have come and have arisen because of that exposure to the outside world. Now we see a much more confident China mm-hmm. um, and, and less, less keen, it seems, to learn from the outside uh, and more confident about putting down its own markers and its own uh, understandings. Um, which is, I guess, understandable. It's just, it's obviously taking all of us by a bit of, a bit of surprise, um, and, 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 and creating the kinds of tensions we see in the relationship with China. That's, that's, that's a big change. Um, of course, um, I think another major change is the, which is related, is the presence of China around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from this isolated, autarkic place just, uh, 35 years ago or so. To a country which you can find at every turn. Uh, and Sydney's just one small mm-hmm. microcosm of how evident that is. Um, you walk the streets of Sydney, you hear Mandarin Chinese all the time. Um, because people live here from okay. China or you have tourists or you have students. You know, that's being replicated in every corner of the world. Um, and you know, that, that has an effect on Chinese foreign policy, but I think it's more than that. It, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, sort of this burst of cultural enthusiasm that's coming out of China and, and planting itself in all different parts of the world. Some of it is sort of government led or the government tries to, um, channel it in a way that, um, is consistent or aligned with its foreign policy, but it's bigger than that. Um, it is, it is a sort of, uh, a return, I suppose, for China to the degree of international influence that it once enjoyed, uh, you know, 200 years ago. And um, before we bring uh, your your China experience up to the present day, um, you spent you spent a lot of time in China. What are the most memorable, standout, personal experience you've had with with the people and the culture? Oh, many, many, many. I mean, the the, the best part about 
going to China is getting out of Beijing and Shanghai um, and spending time uh, as in as remote areas as you possibly can, um, because it's there that you see a wholly different China, first of all, uh, but one which is in many ways still representative of, of the country as a whole, you know, relatively poor, uh, you know, still underdeveloped in many, many, in many ways, still curious about the outside world, not jaded um, about its interaction with the West, um, which I think is just fascinating. Um, had a couple of great experiences doing that. I, um, uh, my wife and I helped consult for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, back in the uh, uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, to help the foundation work through how they could make a contribution to helping China with its HIV/AIDS mm. challenge, which was getting pretty bad at that time. Um, and that entailed, because of where the where the disease was most widespread, um, entailed uh, travel to some rural areas. You may recall there was a major blood scandal mm. in uh, rural parts of China. Um, also to the far west, because there were real problems in amongst the Uyghur uh, population, in part because of widespread um, intravenous drug use in that area. Um, uh, meeting with um, sex workers in small towns, um, because that was another transmission belt. Um, and the chance to interact with and sit down with people who are just common Chinese citizens, really, um, trying to eke out a living in one way or another, but faced with some very, very huge challenges in their lives, mm. whether that be poverty or drug use or uh, um, recidivism in prison, um, uh, you know, having to sell themselves mm. for a living, uh, was a real was a real eye opener. And it's that kind of experience, actually, that you know, you get away from this elite politics stuff, which yeah. is sort of my bread and butter. But you really realize that China, in so many ways, is like a lot of other places in the world, um, faced with big domestic social challenges. Yeah, almost those real human stories that Absolutely. sometimes are, are hidden behind the the veil of, um, as you said, the big politics of, yeah. of what we see in the West, yeah. especially um, from from the Western perspective. We often. Um, we too often view China, I suppose, uh, it in that restrictive as a restrictive government. Um, is that is that felt by the people in China, or is it something that is just so everyday, so business as usual that it doesn't become much of a, you know? I think it, I think it depends on who you are and where you fit in with the system. Um, and again, uh, the the types of people that a person like me would normally interact with uh, when we have our opportunities in China. Um, these are probably party members. Mm. Uh, they would be, by and large, elites within the sort of hierarchy of things, certainly from a political perspective, and in some cases even from a sort of income monetary perspective. And so I think at that level, while there's probably various forms of disgruntlement uh, in the way that the system works, um, for example, you know, not appreciating, uh, restrictions on internet usage, for example, yeah. uh, or not a, restrictions on where they can put their capital, you know, uh, restrictions of, 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 of how easy it is to get their money offshore, that kind of stuff. 
Um, they're by and large, I think, they've bought in with the party and, and, and sort of understand these restrictions as being necessary in order for the country to remain stable and to you know, pursue the so-called China dream. Um, the further you move away from those types of circles, though, I think the more likely you're going to hear more uh, from people about their unhappiness. And, uh, and I've encountered that from time to time. I have to admit it's harder and harder to do to have those sorts of interactions with, with Chinese. Um, but when you do, it really opens up your eyes that, you know, it, it, it runs from the sort of normal complaints that all of us have about government services. You know, they're, yeah. you know, they're not up to snuff. They're not answering my requests. They're not responding to the problems I have with this or that sort of mm. social service issue or yeah. garbage pickup or whatever it might be that ranges from that, you know, all the way up to, uh, you know, I, I, I have to deal with corrupt officials every day. You know, I'm, I'm paying money here or there just to get mm. my mother into a hospital and get her medicine. Um, that, that's that's a little more serious, right? Because that really cuts to the quick of of sort of the nature of the party. Um, or even worse, I mean, you, you can have conversations with the people badmouth uh, Xi Jinping yeah. uh, within closed doors. And if they believe that you're a trustworthy individual... Yeah, they'll they'll laugh out loud about his pomposity yeah. and and so forth. So there's definitely disgruntlement there. Um, it does not arise yet that I can see to any sort of level that it poses any threat mm-hmm. uh, to the to the party, but it's definitely there. Yeah. Um, well, bringing bringing us up to the present day with your observations on uh, on China, it must be a particularly interesting time to observe. You know China on the international stage and Chinese policy, um, especially as the coronavirus has unfolded um, allegedly from Wuhan um, and then across the the globe um, yeah, to to devastating effect. How has that changed? Uh, you know China's relationship on the global stage. Well, this is the largest pandemic uh, we've we've faced since the outbreak of HIV/AIDS. You know in the um, in the nineteen eighties. It's outpaced the previous uh, coronavirus outbreaks we faced, like uh, with MERS and, mm. and SARS. So it's a real problem, and um, it's going to affect China's role and image in the world. Uh, I think at the moment, for worse. Um, and while a lot of the allegations flying around the world blaming China for this aren't entirely, are all of all of them are not well founded. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, I think overall. Uh, it has really raised some deep questions in the minds of capitals all around the world, and not just in Western liberal democracies, um, about the nature of their relationship with China. Um, there's some serious rethinking going on, um, and not only related to COVID. I mean, this was already happening um, before COVID struck, and COVID has really, I think, accelerated these discussions and these debates inside capitals and societies around the world. I mean, it was already the case that Governments and societies were getting worried about overdependency on China. It was already the case that the issue of supply chains and so forth were causing some consternation. Um, obviously, you know, our concerns about human rights mm-hmm. and, and surveillance tactics and, uh, you know, the uh, sort of onerous role of the state and the party within Chinese society against the Uyghurs, for example, and others against dissidents, activists. That was already a problem. Um, now it's seeing uh, even worse in that respect. So, um, what, what I think is going to come out of all this is a bit of distancing, um, certainly in the next year or two, a lot of hard rethinking about how to reframe relations with China. And 
Um, as a result, I suspect that China's going to have a hard time maintaining that sort of ever upward trajectory towards, mm. uh, you know, global leadership that I think it wanted to achieve. And I suppose, as uh, you said, we've, we've seen rapid developments recently um, with Australia's relationship uh, with, mm. with, with China, with, with the increased tariffs, yes. threats and bans, and, of course, the strange insults. I think one of them is uh, Australia is the gum on the bottom of China's shoe. Um, how, how, do you yes. think, how do you think that will play out? You can always count on the senior <laughs> editor of the Global Times to come up with a good turn of phrase. Uh, well, again... Uh, things between Australia and China were already bad uh, before COVID struck. Um, many had already said that the relationship was in the deep freeze. Uh, it, I think at the high level of uh, diplomacy and, and, and bilateral politics, that was true. Um, and this has only exacerbated matters. Um, so uh, I think the relationship between Australia and China is con- is going to continue to go poorly. Um it may well affect more of the economic relationship than it already has. Um, it wouldn't surpri- I don't think we should be surprised or taken aback if um, other sectors um, in the um, in the bilateral economic relationship begin to get affected uh, by dint of a decision in Beijing. I mean, we already know that you know the, the international student numbers out of China that's changed forever. Yeah. Uh, for Australian universities. And that will uh, have a huge impact, uh, presumably. It, 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 it's enormous. I mean, you look at the figures coming out of the uh, University of Sydney and the University of New South Wales, it's shocking mm. the, um, the the deficits they're facing going forward. Other universities who had not been quite as uh, dependent upon those student numbers aren't going to be as badly affected, but they will be, they will be affected. Mm. So um, uh, this... Is, you know, all of this adds up in a way that's not going to get us back to where we were, you know, even three or four years ago in the relationship. So uh, it's not good. And, and it's going to really affect the, the Australian economy, which, you know, has done quite well as a result of its economic relationship with, with China. And on the political level, I don't see how we're going to crawl ourselves back to the so-called strategic, uh, the, the comprehensive strategic partnership, which is sort of the label that the, mm. that the two leaders, uh, Gillard and uh, Lee Kuchang, had um, established between our two countries. Yeah, and we've seen, um, I suppose, some of, some of that action, some of that rhetoric um, towards Australia has certainly become, is it fair to say, more, more aggressive than it has been? And that is, it's also, you know, you've seen some of that rhetoric uh, increase in its forthrightness i suppose on the global stage as well with the us and other countries have, have you, you would have noticed that as, as well what what is that put down to well this is this is getting to the topic of wolf warrior uh, diplomacy um, wolf warrior uh, the term um, the chinese came up with that term um, it's it's reflective or it's 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 eponymous with this blockbuster series of films called wolf warrior 1 wolf warrior 2 that um, looks at the exploits of Chinese special operations uh, forces abroad, you know, extracting Chinese civilians uh, from danger zones and kind of a Rambo-like Mission Impossible, possible, makes James Bond. Yeah, it's, it's really, and, and I have to say, if you like that kind of thing, it, it's pretty um, exciting stuff to watch. Um, but uh, this being transferred now to sort of this more assertive and aggressive tone that's come out of, uh, particularly from the Chinese foreign ministry, 
but which is also reflected across the board, across the entire Chinese uh, uh, external propaganda apparatus that's really pushing back on criticism against China on the COVID-19 response. What explains it? Well, um, again, this, this apparatus, this machine that we now have seen in overdrive to try and take charge of and shape the international narrative toward China was already in place, uh, had been built up over the last three to five years under Xi Jinping. This is just really the first major opportunity uh, that this uh, juggernaut of, a, of, a, of, a, of an international media operation has had. So why so assertive? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm, I tend to interpret it not as a um, sign of Chinese strength, um, although I'll, I'll grant that it is a pretty powerful operation when it really is in full force. It's actually a sign of Chinese weakness. Um, it is a defensive uh, outlash, lashing out, um, to try and push back on what, if they're honest, they understand to be um, real problems uh, in the way that China is dealing with issues at home and how it has chosen to deal with issues abroad. So why? Um, it's clearly not to impress the foreign audience. I mean, it's insulting in some cases. Um, it doesn't, I mean, we've seen the numbers change in polling here in Australia and, and elsewhere around the world, increasingly negative views towards China. Mm. And so it's, it's not helping on the foreign audience. Yeah. Why? Because these, these are targeting China's domestic audience. In particular, it's targeting the Chinese Communist Party itself to try and shore up its confidence, shore up its assurance about itself um, that it's that Xi Jinping is taking the right pathway and moving China forward towards the so-called China dream. Um, you know, for us then looking ahead, it may be reined in a little bit right now. I mean, I think there has been some overreach on this, and they know that their international image has been pretty badly damaged in the way they've been so assertive um, on some of these things. So we'll see it pulled in a little bit, but it's not going to go away. There's been huge investment made in this sort of wolf warrior style of, of international narrative shaping. Yeah. And uh, we're going to see more of it to come. I think there's certainly echoes of the more nationalistic rhetoric coming from you know, other countries at present. Think of Brazil, but especially the United States. Um, and you would have seen, everyone would have seen um, Trump's uh, tactic swing from health crisis in the US to how am I going to get re-elected and often lashing out at opponents and asserting um, that make America great again um, uh, rhetoric. Uh, of course, you could argue that that's a sign of weakness as well um, in, in his uh, you know, confidence in his ability to be um, re-elected at the moment. Um, but sticking with the US, in your opinion, how, how might this crisis change the already tense relationship between China and the United States. I think you're absolutely right to um, to, to sort of fold in the the U.S. aspect here. Uh, you know, it's not it's not as if we can only point at China and say the rest of us are blameless. Um, and uh, the Trump administration and, and the president himself approach to the issue of you know their own domestic response to the international response, and in particular, you know, trying to pin it. Uh, uh, so much to China has only exacerbated the problem. Uh, I, 
I, I have so many um, sort of critical things to say about the way that that's been handled. Like we probably don't have time to cover it all, but mm-hmm. it, I mean, let, let's think about the outcomes. Um, you know, first of all, we see the disastrous outcome in the United States itself. I mean, this is just tragic. Um, and of course, it's it gets reflected in how the U.S. is perceived uh, internationally, right? Um, losing confidence across the board amongst our friends and allies is not uh, a good outcome at all for the United States. Um, you know, getting it back to China, it leaves a pretty open playing field then for China to step forward and say, uh, we have a better plan. You know, we, you know, we, we, we will, will acknowledge that uh, we maybe made some mistakes early on, uh, but overall, you know, we managed to contain it. We put in, we put out billions of dollars in assistance and aid. You know, we've now stepped up uh, in support of the WHO. You know, that juxtaposed against the American response only gives China the kind of um, advantage mm-hmm. and opportunity to boost its international influence uh, that I don't think ought to necessarily be ceded to it. Mm-hmm. And then last of all, yes, it turns the U.S.-China relationship into something going from what was already a pretty bad situation now to something much, much worse uh, and I think highly problematic. If if there were a strategy, if someone could convince me that what the Trump team had in mind was actually a strategy, well, then maybe we could um, begin to say, okay, well, uh, fine. You know, China is a challenge in many respects. Let's let's do what we can to try and bring about uh, some balance to it. But I don't see this as a strategy. Uh, yeah. I think you're right. It's it's largely focused on some pretty narrow self interests, mm-hmm. and uh, we're we're moving in a very very bad direction. I read this really interesting article yesterday in the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, very briefly, um, bring it back to the comprehensive strategic partnership that Australia has with, um, with with China. How compromised is that relationship when Australia almost seems to be caught between two bullies in, uh, and you'll say his name far better than that, Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. How, how dependent is Australia's relationship with China on Australia's relationship with the U.S. Well, you know, um, there there are many in Australia who would say that you know Australia's relationship with with the United States has always been of one with a bully. I mean, I, I don't agree with that myself, but I know that there is a significant sort of a part of the body politic here that would have that view, um, and this just makes things obviously much much worse when you really do have a bully um, in in the White House. Yeah, Australia is um, among, let's say, America's closest friends and allies in probably the tightest squeeze mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to being between China and the United States. Uh, A, because of Australia's significant um, interdependence economically um, with China. And secondly, because, yes, recent years have really seen a significant increase in the degree of its uh, allied relationship with the United States, uh, in some ways, I would say, in the last ten years, becoming one of uh, uh, America's closest security partners uh, across the board. So uh, it's a very difficult um, situation for the leadership here to try and navigate, and it's a situation which is, I think, only going to, obviously is only going to get worse or more difficult. Let's put it that way. 
Um, it's not going to be an easy set of decisions for the for the leaders in Canberra to navigate this because both you know it, it, it's it's like all hard choices you know between two goods that's 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 the hardest choices ever um, between the economic relationship uh, that China brings and the sort of security relationship which us which the United States brings it's not going to be easy uh, I, I think my sense is here in Australia that many are just sort of hoping that there could be a change of leadership in the United States mm-hmm. uh, that might might um, alleviate some of these pressures. It's not going to alleviate all the pressures, no way, uh, because the relationship with China is not going to go all that well going forward. And, of course, even a new president in the United States is also going to be looking to Australia to mm-hmm. join it uh, in, yeah, confronting or counterbalancing China. So the problem's not going to go away, but at least you might have less of a bully in the White House in yeah. trying to deal with it. How capable do you think China is on the glo- of taking advantage on the global stage of, of Trump's rash decisions to say, we're withdrawing funding from the WHO, we're, we're, we're stepping out of NATO unless other countries pay their fair share? How, how, um, how troubling is that? Well, it's very troubling. And, and you know, before the COVID-19 crisis struck, I think uh, Beijing was doing a pretty good job of that, to be very honest. Um, you know, they had stepped up across the board their contributions to international organizations. They were increasing their um, presence in leadership roles within the UN system and other international bodies. They had taken measures to set up their own uh, sort of positive contributions to the international community, like um, this massive infrastructure program called the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, or establishing, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, uh, and lots of other, I would say, yeah, positive contributions to the international system. Meanwhile, we see uh, the United States, in contrast, sort of withdrawing uh, and, and being actually openly negative and um, undermining many of these. Great, great worry. Um, COVID-19 has maybe put a pause on that because of China's uh, response to it and the ability of, of others to denigrate its and, and criticize, criticize China. Um, but unless American leadership comes out of this crisis somehow, um, I'm afraid it's going to require a change of leadership in the United States to make it really happen, uh, to reassert or try to regain some of American uh, leadership uh, in the world. Uh, ultimately, once the COVID crisis is behind us in a year or two's time, I think China's going to pick up where it left off um, and be able to continue to assert uh, its its desire to take greater leadership role and authority and uh, influence in the world. On the topic of international bodies, you were also a director of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute for a number of years. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization. Sure. So CIPRI, S-I-P-R-I, uh, is a pretty well-known uh, global think tank, which is mostly concerned with uh, issues of uh, international security, arms trade, arms control, proliferation, uh, conflict, and conflict management. Uh, and so it was a really great honor and uh, to be able to um, step into the role of heading that institution uh, from uh, I moved from Washington. I was the first American, actually, to to take on that role, which was really quite quite an honor. They always have an international, a director who's not um, Swedish, but they'd never had an American before. Um, it, it was a real eye-opener because um, the organization has a great deal of respect and 
and international connectivity. Um, so I was able to, you know, get through some doors and meet with leaders around the world in a way that I'd never had the opportunity to do. Um, and uh, basically the organization is trying to put forward ideas uh, and, and information that is going to lead to greater stability, to reduce the likelihood of conflict, uh, to make more transparent the activities of governments around the world that are, uh, you know, inclined toward the opposite direction, you know, trying to increase arms sales, trying to destabilize um, situations around the world. So it was a fantastic experience. It, it was an international uh, institution, so it had you know people from all over the world, some twenty or thirty um, nationalities represented there, and just doing, I think, just good work, you know, to try to bring about more peaceable and uh, stabilizing conditions around the world. So you know, I, I could hardly think of a better job than that, and it was a great experience. Uh, you were awarded the Royal Order of the Commander of the Polar Star. Right. Um, apart from that sounded like an epic medieval prince title, <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could tell us uh, what that means and, of course, what it meant to you as well. A huge honor. This is, this is um, an honor that uh, the, the king, or I should say the monarch in, in Sweden, bestows upon foreigners. It's, 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 a, it's an order. It's a chivalric order, which is for foreigners. And, uh, and it, this is the highest honor that a foreigner can receive from the, from the monarch in Sweden for services to Sweden. So, I, you know, it was because of the work that I did at, at Cipri. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, because the order was granted to me after I had left Sweden and, and, and come here to Australia, I did not get the chance to go through any pomp and circumstance with, with, <laughs> with the king himself, although I've got a very nice, um, a sort of diploma, I guess you'd call it, signed by uh, His Majesty. And as it turned out, uh, his representative here, the ambassador in, in Australia, uh, was the one who sort of uh, gave me the, the award. But it's been a great, I mean, I, I just really appreciate it. I mean, you know, being an American, you sort of poo-poo some of these, these things in relation to, um, uh, to royalty. Uh, but for me, it's uh, having devoted so much time um, and interest in this institution in Sweden and, and loving the country of Sweden as much as I do, it was just an enormous honor. You're, you're a huge advocate of a global interconnected world. Have your views on that changed at all with what's happened on the global stage over, over the last couple of years? Uh, in many respects, yes, it has. Uh, and not, I don't think it's changed in a way that makes me less of an advocate uh, I think in some ways I'm, I feel even more passionate of the need to be an outward-looking uh, thinker, uh, outwardly engaged beyond your national borders, uh, not to um, shrink into what I acknowledge is becoming uh, increasingly uh, nationalistic, uh, inwardly-looking uh, ways of thinking. Uh, yeah, the the, the battle uh, for advocacy of an international perspective is getting harder and harder to pursue. And the, the COVID situation obviously makes it even more difficult, uh, just by dint of the fact that it, you know, you can't travel internationally. So I've been trying to think through, uh, uh, what this is going to mean. Uh, and a couple of things come to mind. One, uh, you know, globalization itself is under enormous attack. Uh, and, and I think in many respects for good reason, uh, so I think, obviously, uh, 
a very big rethink is needed in what we mean by globalization and how is it that we can be much more serious about uh, making sure the benefits are far more evenly distributed across our countries and societies. Um, Second, I think, you know, we're going to be going through a period here for two, three, maybe more years until there's an effective and trustworthy vaccine out there mm-hmm. uh, that international connectivity has to be entirely rethought. Um, and of course, you know, we're looking at things like Zoom and so forth, but I think even more innovative than that. And I'd like to be a part of that, a part of that process and be a big advocate for how we can pull that off mm-hmm. in a world in which face-to-face international communication and travel is, is pretty much off the table. You know, for the next two, three years, perhaps. Um, it's obvious that the connectivity continues. I mean, all this talk of bringing home manufacturing, um, of becoming more self-reliant, um, it's, it may be true in some respects, but I think once the price of what that really is going to entail uh, becomes clearer to publics, uh, the less likely I think it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So... The real task now for persons like me and others who, you know, believe strongly in the power of international connectivity for benefit and for good is to figure out uh, how that's going to happen, especially in an age uh, of less travel. Mm-hmm. And I think there are ways to do it. And um, thinking we, we can just simply shrink into autarky is complete folly. Mm-hmm. So um, with that in mind, looking into your uh, your crystal ball, which is perhaps... Uh, more informed than um, most. What what key trends do you think we can expect to to see um, in relation to international relations over over the next um, couple of years post COVID? I think there's going to be a uh, for me a rather disconcerting um, increase of the role of the state, if that's the right way of putting it. I mean, again, it was already sort of underway, especially in authoritarian. Uh, regimes like China or Russia or even others like uh, Turkey, you can name a bunch, mm. uh, where there's an effort to insert the state more uh, onerously into the lives of the citizenry. Um, I think COVID, because of the need for the state to enter uh, into our lives to try and help us deflect the worst um, out- outcomes of the disease, um, is going to mean that there's going to be more intrusiveness, I think, in some of our lives uh, than we're used to. Um, and once states have that power, um, I think they're going to be reluctant to give it up. Mm. Um, so as a citizenry, I think we need to be aware of that, cognizant of it, not to resist it necessarily. But what I mean is understand that on the other side of all this, uh, we, we're going to need to do what we can to push back to a bit less intrusiveness there's going to be this nationalistic um, uh, trend that we saw beginning before COVID that's going to be more inward-looking, which I think we need to also try everything we can to push back against. I mean, for a country like Australia, I think because of the relative success the country has enjoyed in its response, maybe those pressures won't be as strong, which is a good thing. Um I think we need to find others like-minded in terms of our ability to have dealt with the crisis uh, and get ourselves to a place where we feel safe, uh, even prior to uh, a vaccine, and figure out ways to work uh, with those countries 
to assure the continued openness and interconnectivity that our world needs and that a country like Australia surely needs in order to be as successful in the future as it has been up until now. We've mentioned your skill with languages, but one thing I haven't mentioned is that you're actually also a blues singer who dabbles with the harmonica. Right. How do you feel about playing us out? Oh, I'd I'd love to do that. Uh, James, you know, I should mention, if I could just give a shout out to uh, a, a, a band that I'm in called the Batesville Blues Band. It's it's the Batesville Blues Band it has nothing to do with with me and my name. It just happens to be the town of Virginia where we formed. Uh, I think 36 years ago. Um, it, it, it's on my mind because with the COVID crisis, uh, this will be the first year in 34 years that our band has not uh, had a reunion. We've been doing it for 34 years in a row, playing someplace in the United States. And unfortunately, uh, this will be the first year that that we won't be able to do that. So uh, a little shout out to them. And let's see if you recognize um, this tune. Here we go. Well, I see you sitting there in your silk upholstered chair. You're talking to some rich folks that you know. Well, I know that you won't see me in my ragged company, no. But you know that I will never be alone. So take me down, little Susie, take me down. I know you think you're the queen of the underground. And you can send me dead flowers in the morning. Yeah, you can send me dead flowers by the mail. You can send me dead flowers on my wedding day. Yes, you can. And I won't forget to put flowers on your grave. No, no, I won't forget to put flowers on your grave. Thanks so much, Bates. Thank you, James.